standing with me out of respect for the word and turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, I will be reading verses 1 through 11. Here is the infallible, inspired, and art word of God. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Not let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God in Christ, you have revealed your glory among the nations. Preserve the works of your mercy that your church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith in the confession of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen? You may be seated. Uh, this past summer, uh, Protestants marked a significant milestone on July 10th, 2009, which was the 500th anniversary of the birthday of our patron Saint John Calvin. <laughs> and appropriately, appropriately, so as you would imagine, there was a number of conferences, uh, books, and lectures, and articles written about him on that occasion. Yeah, there was this one article, however, that I came across uh, very recently that stands out in my thinking, not because I agreed very much with the article, because I disagreed with almost all of it, but something in there caught my attention that sort of links into uh, the theme that we're going to explore and unravel a little bit here in our passage this morning, and that is that the theology of Calvin was pervaded with mystery. Now, that's not because Calvin was some sort of proto-postmodern thinker. It happened to be that Calvin uh, attempted to formulate a theology that was based upon Scripture alone. And so when Calvin studied the Bible, and he found in the Bible uh, concepts about God and His truth that were too large for him to understand, you will find him frequently calling it a mystery, or you will find him frequently saying, I don't know. And that's a pretty good answer to give when you don't know the answer to the question. It's okay to say, I don't know. Or it's okay to say, that's a mystery. I don't fully understand it. For instance, when Calvin would speak about the relationship of the natures of Christ within uh, the person of Jesus Christ, he would talk about it as Christians often have throughout the history of the church. That it's a mystery. How could it be? That you have these two natures together in one person, they're not commingled, they're not confused, and they're not separated, they're mysteriously united in the person. The doctrine of the Trinity as well is a mystery. How can it be that God is one, emphatically one, yet the scripture reveals that there are three persons of the Godhead in such a way that there are not three gods, but there's one God. That's a mystery. 
When it comes to the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, we are told emphatically that Jesus said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And yet we know that Jesus Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Two truths are affirmed. On one hand, we feed on Christ because His Word promises that we do. On the other, we know He is in heaven and we are on earth. It's a mystery. I hope you're understanding now the sense in which I'm using the term mystery. It basically uh, suggests there's some things that we don't know or we just cannot comprehend. Uh, and as good Calvinists, when we find that kind of example in the Bible, we say... We don't know, but at the same time, what we do is we clearly affirm and confess and uphold what the Bible reveals. Now, as we come to our passage this morning, we see uh, the human side of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And let me just pause and define what the Reformed have understood by the perseverance of the saints. And basically, it's misnamed. What the Reformed are trying to say is that the saints are preserved by the sovereign grace of God just as they are saved by the sovereign grace of God. You can't miss that in the Bible. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and no one plucks them out of my hand. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. You know, you just cannot read the Bible accurately and think that there's any way that truly one of God's children is going to fall short of salvation. As clear and emphatically as that is revealed in the Bible, we also have clear and emphatic admonitions to Christians that they must persevere in the faith. They must persevere in the faith. And the Bible often in the New Testament admonishes and exhorts Christians to persevere with threats and conditions hanging over their head. Colossians 1.22, he says, Christ has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, if indeed you continue in the faith. That's conditional. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 says, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. Again, you say, well, how could that be? Jesus already told us that if, if, he, if He clutches us in His hands, we can never fall away. No one can snatch us out of His hands. Well, we say it's a mystery in a sense. We will not fail to reach that goal, but God still, on the other hand, emphatically admonishes the believer who is regenerate by the grace of God to persevere in the faith. And often it does that with some pretty powerful, strong, vivid admonitions. And when it does that, our obligation is to declare what we know to be true. And what we know to be true this morning is that God preserves and God commands us as His people to persevere. And that's exactly what you find here in this chapter. As the Apostle Paul begins to uh, continue to expand upon the argument here to the Corinthians about his own example of pursuing the Christian life as if it were a race, uh, to the full... Uh, amount of his energy so that he will never fall short of winning first prize. He begins to apply that example of his own Christian life and his pursuit of 
heavenly glory. He applies that now to the Corinthians, and he does that by looking back to the Old Testament. First point I want us to look at here this morning, that Paul says, and it's an admonition, we'll dig that out in a minute, Paul is arguing that people can be made, God's people, covenant people, can be made recipients of God's gracious provisions and still fall short of salvation. Look at your Bible. Verse 1, he walks his way through here in the first four verses through a whole series of uh, blessings that the whole uh, group or the whole body of the covenant people experience. He says, Brothers, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers, that's Israel, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So the very first uh, special blessing of God that he points to is that all of Israel uh, experienced this, this amazing and transcendent experience of being under the cloud and passing through the sea. And obviously what the Apostle Paul is referring to here is the exodus from Egypt. And the cloud emerges in Exodus chapter 13 after this, um, the Passover meal has been celebrated. And we see Israel departing from the cities and precincts of Egypt. And instead of uh, pulling out a, a chart and a compass and a map and uh, figuring out their way home or back to the promised land, God comes to them in the form of this enormous cloud and He leads the people out of Egypt precisely on the path that He wants to take them. We see that cloud also reappearing in Exodus chapter 14, for instance, again, as Israel has its back to the Red Sea and the Egyptian armies are charging hard on the other side. And we're told in the Word of God that that cloud went from before Israel to behind Israel as a sort of buffer between the charging Egyptian chariots and the people of God as they were camped with their backs against the sea. That cloud reemerges all throughout the books, or the first five books of the Bible, as, as the uh, people of God journey through the wilderness. We're told that every time the cloud settled over the tabernacle, that the people of God camped. And every time the cloud lifted up and moved out, the people of God pulled up their tent stakes and went forward following the cloud. That cloud was a supernatural, miraculous presence of God with Israel. And, and what Paul says is that all of these uh, fathers experienced that. He says they all passed through the sea, and obviously this is a reference to the Exodus. Of course, you're well aware of the fact that throughout the Old Testament, this is looked to as the great symbolic event of redemption of God's people. All throughout the Old Testament as well, it's, it, it is also a sign pointing to the fullness or the climax of their salvation. But it was an enormously uh, amazing event as God's people there were... Uh, camped with back against the wall against the sea, uh, completely terrified that the Egyptian armies were going to come shred them to pieces. Then all of a sudden God tells Moses to extend his hand over the water with the staff that he had used to perform so many miracles in Egypt. And God drew this enormously powerful wind to separate the Red Sea. And the people of God walked right through on dry land. And then the Egyptians pursued them into the sea. And of course, you know that the Word of God tells us that once the last Israelite made the other side of the seashore, that the walls came crashing back down. All of the Egyptians were plunged to their death. And the bodies of the Egyptians were scattered on the beachhead. 
so that the Israelites could look across their shoulder and see the victory of God. And, and the Word of God says right there, at the very end of that chapter in Exodus 14, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and His servant Moses. So they uh, participated in this great event of redemption. In other words, that's what Paul was saying. At least externally so. And then in verse 2 and 3 and 4, he draws out their participation uh, in Old Testament sacraments. He says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were baptized into Moses and basically uh, Charles Hodges' explanation is probably as good as anybody when he says that the passage uh, through the sea and their guidance by the cloud was their baptism. Not necessary to argue about this passage at great length and wonder whether it's telling us anything about the mode of baptism, because not. The point is that they were brought under the uh, covenantal mediation control of Moses. They were to submit to Moses and the revelation that God was going to give to them through Moses. But Paul says they shared a baptism. They have a baptism. They have a participation sacramentally. In God's grace. Then verse 3, we're told they all ate the same spiritual food. And of course, this has to be a reference to manna. And one of the objections to it being manna is because it's called spiritual. But uh, it's quite obvious here that Paul is referring to their participation in some sort of a spiritual sacramental meal. That's what manna was unto them. Says the same, notice that, the same spiritual food. And then in verse 4 it says they all drink the same spiritual drink. And obviously the reference there is to the historical incidents of Exodus 17 when uh, God told Moses after the complaining of Israel and Egypt to strike the rock and out of that rock streams of water came forth. What Paul tells us there in verse 4 that uh, that rock was Christ. In other words, Christ was the great provision for Israel. And so they steadily drank from that. The verb there is in the imperfect tense, and it suggests that the water just continued to flow. For 40 years, a, a, a wide a stream was opened up of water to feed all and water all of Israel throughout the 40 years of the wandering. The point in all this is Paul keeps saying it's saved. He's drawing a comparison. He's saying they had the sacraments. They participated in the great event of redemption. They witnessed the, the supernatural symbolic presence of God among Israel in the cloud. And he's simply trying to underscore this connection between Israel and the Corinthians who are now... Uh, not only experienced redemption through Jesus Christ, but also have sacramentally participated in Jesus Christ. And the entire point of this parallel, drawing the connections out, is to teach the Corinthians and us as well a warning. What happens when believers simply presume upon these things and don't persevere in their faith? Or rather, that they participate in these sacraments and these acts of redemption without faith. Notice the terrible failure that Paul notes here in verse 5. He said, nevertheless, with most of them, 
God was not well pleased for there they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, in order to appreciate what Paul is saying here in verse 5, you have to uh, notice the fact that in verses 1 through 4, Paul kept saying, all. All passed through the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate the same spiritual drink. All drank the same spiritual drink. And what you're expecting now in verse 5 is for Paul to say, and all of them God was pleased with, but in the original it's very emphatic, the very first words in the text are, but not. It's really rugged. It's very jarring. You see, in spite of all of these provisions, the Apostle Paul says, God was not well pleased with most of them. God was not well pleased with most of them. And I want us to be aware of a common mistake in translating that phrase, most of them. Often you will find commentators, and this may even be in your study Bibles, uh, they'll point out that only two of the people who survived uh, the 40 years of wilderness wandering actually uh, made it into the promised land that was Joshua and Caleb, while everyone else who came out with Israel out of Egypt died in the wilderness. I don't think that's what Paul is saying because of the following examples. What I think what Paul is saying is that when he says that God was not pleased with most of them, he laid their bodies low in the wilderness, Paul is thinking in terms of these notorious examples of sin. I don't think that Paul is saying that all the people who came out of Egypt basically died in unbelief in the wilderness. That's too harsh. I think what he's saying is that there, uh, there are a significant number of them, and he's going to walk through the examples here, who never joined faith with the reception of God's gracious benefits, and they never persevered in that grace. And so what Paul argues here is that God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were laid low in the wilderness. And again, you have a very vivid use of language there when he says laid low. It really has the sense of strewn out. Imagine if you took a huge load of uh, feathers and you put them in the back of a pickup that had an open bed and you sped down the freeway, of course, within this, the speed limits. What would happen to all the feathers? They'd blow out of the truck and you'd see them strewn all across the landscape behind you. That's the same sense of the word here in verse 5. Their, their bodies were literally littered across the wilderness. Now who were those people? Well you see, and Paul tells you about them in verses 6 and following. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on these uh, because we're going to come back over the same ground next week as we... Uh, we analyze them in relationship to what Paul wants to say about all that in verse 13. But Paul gives us some insight into who those people were that God laid low in the wilderness. He tells us in verse 6 about those uh, who craved evil things. And uh, the grammar of the passage, the language of the passage, hooks us back up to Numbers 11. You remember that in Numbers 11, there was a multitude within Israel uh, that came up out of Egypt. And there was also some uh, Israelites who began to grumble because they were tired of eating manna all day. And so they complained that they wanted some meat. And so uh, Paul says that their evil cravings led them into rebellion. And so God, of course, you remember the story in Numbers chapter 11. Uh, God caused this big wind to blow in the wilderness. 
and he brought in so many dead quail that literally their bodies were scattered from one end of the camp of Israel to the other and even outside the parameters of that. And when the Israelites saw all that, the picture is that they ran out there because they've been eating manna for months and months and months. And then they run out there and they fill their, their bags full of these quail and they cook it up just nice like they wanted to, over roasting it over a fire. And as soon as they sunk their teeth into that fresh quail meat, God struck them dead. And He called the place Kibroth Tatavah which means graves of the greedy. You see, they craved evil things. Verse 7, we're told about the Exodus 32 incident when Moses was up in the mountain receiving revelation. And we're told that the people of God came to Aaron and they asked him to make for them some sort of a visible and external God. And of course, that's the golden calf. Incident, And we're told there, just in summary fashion about this incident, which isolates the character of what was going on when those people came to Moses, or rather to Aaron, and they started uh, worshipping in this way. It says, they sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. In other words, they had an enormous feast, and then they rose up to play, they engaged in an enormous sexual orgy. As an expression of religious worship, they were borrowing from false religion and false worship. And on that day, 3,000 were struck dead. Verse 8, Numbers 25, one incident of Israel on the plains of Moab. And we're told there that they engaged in prostitution and false worship with the daughters of Moab in the acacia groves. And on that incident, 24,000 people died. Verse 9, uh, we have another reference to an Old Testament historical event. And that's Numbers 21, where they were complaining against God after a military victory. The same old complaint that Israel had been echoing for years and years. They come again to Moses and they complain that Moses has led them out of the wilderness, that they all would thirst, be famished, and die with their families. In response to that, God sent them a herd of fiery snakes, and we're told many died. No number, but it seems to be probably quite a few. Then verse 10. The final example here is from number 16. 250 leaders of the people of Israel came along with Korah and they challenged Moses and Aaron's authority. If you turn back to that chapter, you'll find that uh, Moses called all those people out before him along with their families and their cattle and their livestock and their possessions and the earth swallowed them up and killed them all. Then after that, we're told at the end of the chapter that the next day the people of Israel were so upset by this, they gathered together and they accused Moses of getting rid of his competition. And the Word of God tells us that God sent a plague on the camp and 14,700 were killed. Now what Paul has done is he's just taken some selective examples, notorious examples, there probably were numerous others, but he takes those examples and he says, see, all of these people experienced all of these divine provisions and instead of persevering in their faith by the grace of God, what did they do? Well, Paul says they engaged in stuffing their sinful desires. They engaged in false worship. They engaged in immorality. They engaged in rebellion. They grumbled. And they died. I said, what are we to make of all of this? It seems rather negative, doesn't it? 
uh, Paul talks about how it seems some people partake in grace and yet the next minute, uh, in example after example, we find that uh, really they weren't such good people after all and they, they all died in the wilderness. What are we to make of this? Well, the answer to what we're to make of this is found in the very first word of verse 10, or rather of chapter 10, verse 1. I hope your Bible says 4. Now, my Bible, I have to turn a page back to see what the 4 is connecting to, but that means that Paul is linking back to something else, so hopefully your Bible is open. And just look at verse 27. Paul says, But I discipline my body and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. We had this sermon last week. The Apostle Paul exhorted uh, the Corinthian believers to live the Christian life with complete diligence to strive with all of their might and all of their energy for first place prize. And Paul then appealed to his own example. He says, this is what I do. I beat my body and I, I, I pound it into submission. I make it my slave so that when I preach the gospel to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He says, I don't want to fall short of the very salvation that I proclaim. Now that thought is on his mind as he turns into chapter 10 and he applies that now to the Corinthians. And he says, it's not just me who thinks this way. This is a real valid principle illustrated from redemptive history. So he says, for, brothers, I don't want you to be unaware. What's Paul doing? I don't think that Paul is sort of filling in their gaps in Bible knowledge. They all had Bibles. Many of the people in this congregation were Jews. They they would have known this story about uh, these several Old Testament stories about rebellion in the wilderness. So you ask yourself, what what is Paul up to here? Especially as he connects it back to his own example. The point is, is he's trying to sort of shake loose their thinking to exhort and to admonish them uh, that they have to strive in the Christian life. They have to persevere in the Christian life. That they cannot simply presume. They cannot just simply say, well, I've washed with the blood of Jesus and now I can live like I want to. I can throw self-discipline out the door. I can pursue my own desires. And I can, I can uh, just believe that somehow through all of this, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to experience the full outworking of my salvation. The Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this, brothers. There were a whole stream of people in the Old Testament who visibly and externally participated in the great acts of redemption and participated in the sacraments and nonetheless God was angry with them and He left their bodies littering the wilderness. He's saying by way of warning and admonition to the church, you must persevere. You must persevere in your salvation. You must persevere in your avoidance and participation and and staying away from idolatry and sin. That's the human side of the perseverance of the saints now that he takes up and he applies this to the Corinthians. He says, based upon my model, I'm applying it to you now, that... Don't presume upon these things. You persevere in your faith and obedience in Jesus Christ. 
Now, there's a number of applications I want to draw out from this passage this morning for us. And the first uh, admonition that I want to draw out this morning is that divine preservation is not apart from human perseverance. Divine preservation is not apart from human perseverance. Another way of saying that is that God has not ordained the end apart from the means. The end is the reception of the full outworking of divine predestination. We will receive the things that God has appointed in eternity past for us to receive in Jesus Christ. And the full outworking of those things. But God has also appointed a process. And He's appointed the means that we must make use of in order to secure that end. What Paul is arguing here is that that end is not achieved apart from the means. I realize that's a mystery. I realize it's a mystery to us that Paul can so emphatically and so clearly say that in eternity past, before the foundations of the world, that we were sovereignly chosen in Jesus Christ unto salvation and a full participation of His benefits. And yet, on on the other hand, turn around and say, but you must persevere and, and very firmly admonish and exhort the people of God to persevere. Uh, it's, it's back to that concept of mystery again. Yes, it, it is mysterious. I confess I don't fully understand it. I don't fully grasp it. But God said it in His Word. You've been, a, you've been appointed unto salvation in Christ. You've been saved by the sovereign grace of God. Yet, you must persevere in your faith. Difficult to understand. But it's a requirement. What we're not to do this morning is listen to that and deduce from that that somehow it's my works, my works of perseverance that end up saving me. Some people may think, well, I don't know if I can really believe that because it sounds to me now like you're telling me that God has saved us up to a certain point and now together with Him we complete the task and somehow my works are contributing ultimately to my salvation. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying that those who are truly saved indicate that and they demonstrate that and they manifest it and make it uh, appear real as it really is and genuine as it really is by their obedience. And so those people who are truly partakers of Christ and His blessings and have been regenerated and so forth, they really do persevere in the faith. They really do aim at bearing fruit. They really do trust and believe all that God has revealed. They really do bear with difficulties and they endure difficulties. Not that it earns them God's grace and favor. But it's a demonstration that God has indeed changed them. So the first thing that we deduce from this passage here as we look at this human side of the preservation of the saints is that preservation is not apart from our perseverance in the faith and obedience by the grace of God. Secondly, uh, obviously from this passage, we take this application that Christians are to take sin seriously. Christians are to take sin seriously. I can't imagine any other reason why that Paul would first lay out all of these benefits that all at least externally partook in, and then say, yet God was angry with a whole bunch of them, and then 
show in one example after another how the covenant people failed miserably and fell short of their salvation. There's no other reason to bring all of this up than to make a very serious admonition, a very serious exhortation to Christians that we have to take sin seriously. You know, it's not enough to just show up and take the sacraments and 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 show up and hear the Word and yet it's never connected with faith. It's never connected with love. And all the while, there's no regard for sin and a fighting of sin and a hatred of sin and a turning away from sin. I realize that's not a very comfortable message. But what I see Paul saying here is that believers have to always be vigilant and watch out for sin in their life and don't allow it to take root in their heart and take root in their mind and begin to govern their life. That they become eventually just completely desensitized to sin, uh, unaware of sin, uncaring about sin. The next thing you know, what happens? Great sin overwhelms them. The flip side of that is this, is that those who are truly saved and those who are grateful for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, regularly experience their conscience bothering them about sin. They do care about the fact that they sin. They do hate sin. They do fight sin. They do pray for strength to get rid of sin. And they constantly seek sin's forgiveness. That's what true believers do. And if that's not you this morning, then you need to be thinking about your relationship to the Lord. See, true believers do regard sin and they, they flee from it. They don't just presume upon promises. They fight sin. The third thing that this passage uh, would say to us, though, and I want to conclude with this because I realize that there's been an awful lot of exhortation and admonition as I wanted to end with this this week. Last week as I began the admonition from Paul's own example about running the race with great diligence and self-discipline and so forth, I began by preaching the gospel. But this week I conclude with preaching the gospel. One thing I want to make clear from 1 Corinthians 10 here, from these whole series of examples, that the Apostle Paul is not trying to scare Christians. He's not trying to say to Christians that they should have no assurance of faith. He's not trying to say to Christians, don't look at your baptism and be admonished and, and encouraged by it. No, he's having to admonish pride and haughtiness in the part of some Christians who simply have no regard for their sinfulness and are showing by that that they don't have a regard for the gospel. But if you're the kind of person who's here this morning and you've heard the admonitions and, and you've seen all the bodies of the, uh, of the Israelites strewn across the wilderness and you say to yourself this morning, man, I don't want God to be displeased with me. If that's what you're saying is you hear the admonition 
You say, I, I, don't, I don't want to fall like those people who indulge their, their evil desires. I don't want to be like these idolaters here. I don't want to be like the immoral who fell in the wilderness. I don't want to be like the ones who were destroyed by fiery servants. I don't want to be the kind of Christian who is characterized and marked out as grumbling and disobedience. I don't want that. I want to fight against that. Then that is an indication that there is real faith, genuine faith in your heart. And that you're receiving and participating in these great and gracious divine provisions with faith. If that's you, then you're entitled this morning as you walk away from the admonitions. You're entitled to assurance. You're entitled to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.6. I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. You're entitled to look at your baptism and to see Christ in it and Christ uh, washing you and sprinkling you with His precious blood and marking you out as His. You're entitled to that. You're entitled to walk forward this morning to receive uh, the bread and the wine and the sacrament and to see in that a picture of the Gospel that Jesus Christ was crucified and His body was broken, His blood was shed for you. You're entitled to that. You're entitled this morning to hear Christ speaking the word and speaking promises to you. You're entitled this morning to clutch to the promises of God. Even if you feel like your faith is weak and you know you have not been living obediently as Christ has called you. Yet you are saying with full assurance, I know I believe the truth. I know I love Jesus Christ. I know I am grateful for my salvation. And I know I have been sinful in the way I've pursued this Christian life. You are entitled this morning to take whatever faith you have and to grab hold of Jesus Christ and to find your hope and your assurance in Him. You're entitled to all that. You're entitled to that assurance to be cheered and strengthened and energized. But once you've done that, I believe this is what Paul's aim would be. It would be walk back to the challenge of these verses. We walk back to the challenge, which is to draw your mind and heart and body and soul together in discipline and to walk in the obedience that Paul is calling us to, that God is calling us to, and to live and pursue the Christian life in such a way that we would not be disqualified. To live the Christian life in such a way that God would not be displeased with us as He was with these unfaithful, stubborn, rebellious Israelites. And instead of uh, having God come at us in anger, that we would go forward in obedience and pursue this calling of the Christian life in such a way that we would finally see ourselves and experience for ourselves of being seated firmly in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. That's the encouragement and that's the admonition of 1 Corinthians 10, 1-5 for us. Let's pray.